Hey everybody, welcome back to the One's Ready Podcast. You're in the team room. You've got Aaron and I, and we wanted to talk to you about uh, a few things that really we have kind of lived the entire time within Special Operations. And Special Operations Command has what they call soft truths or Special Operations Force truths. Uh, and it's kind of the the mantra that all of us try and, and live by and aspire to be. So what we're going to do is we're going to hop on into each one of them and, and give you some details on kind of what they are and what our perspectives are on them. Yeah. So, yeah. And then uh, enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, we've already hit soft truth one. Humans are more important than the hardware. We've hit soft truth two. Quality is better than quantity. And now on the soft truth three, which is special operations cannot be mass produced. Now you could using that, Aaron, you could easily go down the kind of, all right, well, let's talk about selection and stuff like that again because yeah. of the mass production. But that's, that's a fraction of what this is actually getting after. Um, I think I think we could probably talk about more. It's it is more focused on kind of the training aspect of it. What do you think? It is, yeah. So truth three, and this is directly go to socom.mil. You can Google the soft truths. And remember, these are applied for all parts of your life, man. Like this is not just for soft guys. We're telling you how it is that we work and how it is that we, you know, what it is that we value so that you can find a counterpoint in it and hopefully put it in your toolbox. So special operations forces cannot be mass produced. It takes years to train operational units to the level of proficiency needed to accomplish difficult and specialized soft missions. Intense training both in soft schools and units, is required to integrate competent individuals into fully capable units. This process cannot be hastened without degrading the ultimate capability. To me, this just screams risk aversion, right? We talk about it all the time. When people DM us and they talk about the pipeline, I say this to almost everybody that asks me. They're like, oh, you know, what was your scariest part of the pipeline? I'm like, the pipeline? The scariest part of my life was when I got to a unit, we started doing stuff for real, for real. Like the closest that I ever felt that I was like to dying was in Norway. I thought I was going to freeze to death. I, like, no kidding. Like we were, dude, it, it, was neg- it was negative 40. It was so cold that in our tents, it froze our radios and our tough books solid. Like they were bricks of ice. That's how cold it was. And we were out working the night before. Shout out to b- my boy Smalls, Biggie Smalls and I. We thought we were going to die out in the wilderness. It was just the two of us. And that, that was like colder than I've ever been. Constantly fighting off frostbite, constantly fighting off hypothermia. But you have to train to that level. You cannot mass produce soft, soft forces for this reason, right? If you look at these huge training centers, if you look at 29 Palms, if you look at the NTC, if you look at all of these other places where these huge units go and they, they go to train, right? You can't offer every single individual out there the opportunity to push themselves to their absolute limit because you would just, it would be chaos, right? But in soft units where we have specially trained, well-equipped, well-led people, you're supposed to take that to its absolute edge, to the bleeding edge of stuff. You know, I don't know how many times I've gotten ready to go, you know, when you do a jump spin up. You know, it was one of these times that I really think about it. the team is starting to get really good. The team is starting to click and you look at everybody. You're like, all right, boys, no GPS is on this one. We're going straight up. You're going off your, your, your halo board and you're going off a radio. And that's how we're getting to this unmarked DZ or, Hey, now it's time to do this at night. 
of course, you're going to be a little bit worried. You're going to be like, okay, like, hey, the risk is going up here. Or, you know, the first time that you go into a shoot house and things are live fire, you know, the first time that you and you and 10 of your closest friends are clacking off real rounds in a room next to each other and you're right next to somebody shooting or they're like, you can feel their muzzle blast blast mm-hmm. by you as they shoot their target. That's a different feeling, boys and girls. Like that yeah, feels that, different. That very first time. I still remember that very first time. That was yep. that puck. Over, and I was a young senior airman. Mm-hmm. Doing that. that was Ooh, boy. And now listen, the training is it's well organized, right? It's specifically for, and I always, I valued live fire shoot house like that uh, for whatever reason, it's got this weird stigma, like live fire shoot house is kind of in our realm where everybody like freaks out and they're like, Oh, whatever. Man, you start off with just one man doing it and you have somebody literally holding your kit and they walk through and then you, you engage your targets and then there's two and you still have one-on-one safety in those early rounds. You know, you, you have somebody that's here and you and your friend prosecute a room and typically what you're seeing is, is very bland, right? Like simple targets. It's easy to see like, but then you start getting into it. And by the end of that spin up and by the end of those events, there's no more one-on-one safety. Now it's the team and now it's more complex problems that you're seeing in front of you. And now you're forced to make decisions on the go um, with high, high consequences. You know, if you, you shoot your buddy, man, it happens. It happens. Unfortunately, we just had a death. The IRS special agent shot their friend and killed him in a live fire training. So, um, and that's a training problem, right? That's why you can't, the masses do not do the type of training that soft does. When we do training, you cannot mass produce soft forces. They have to be very dialed in processes and it takes years to train operational units to the level of proficiency and that's important it's not currency it's it's proficiency just jumping one time in 180 days that keeps you current that doesn't make you proficient you have to train over and over and over again hours of beating on your craft and it takes units years to get to that operational level of proficiency. That's why the tier one units are so good, right? Like I'm, I'm not a fanboy to those units by any, uh, by any stretch of the imagination, right? Like they're just men, they're just doing a job. But the fact that they have trained so hard for so long and pushed the envelope of risk, that's what makes them so good. There, there's not like, there's no special serum that we give to a guy to send to the tier one units. We all have friends that work there. We know these, these guys, they have limitations. They're just humans but they spent hours and hours and hours of beating on their craft in a professional manner, accepting risk, not unnecessary risk, but accepting risk and pushing themselves right up to the bleeding edge of what is acceptable. Because in the moment, you're going to need to know what it feels like to do some stuff that is very risky and then make sure that you do it safely and then proficiently. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, your uh, cold weather training in Norway was a good example because we had a, I remember we, we did a joint, a J set, a, a joint combined exchange training. Uh, and that is where, you know, for the folks out there, that's, it's where you're bringing in a whole bunch of different countries into a one training exercise uh, for two to three weeks at a location and, and you do common common training and then you also do, you know, individual unit training and stuff like that. But um, I remember that I, I planned one in Norway and we were the Norwegians were being very selective as they should be on if you were going to be out into the field on your own operating. You ha- you rec- you are required to go through these courses. 
right? The, and it was their winter warfare courses. Um, there was one country in particular that somehow got a waiver or were like, hey, we've done this, this training that was equivalent and um, which was not Norwegian's. It was somebody else's. Um, I'll just say it was Spain, right? Mm-hmm. So, and uh, we ended up having to exfil them out and a couple of their members lost some digits to frostbite um, and they were going to die if we didn't go in there and get them out. And do you remember who planned that? Remember who, who was the guy, the winter warfare graduate that ended up making like all the difference in that scenario? No. Danny Dumlau. No way. 100%. Really? Danny Dumlau. Wow. Com- yeah. He went to the same winter warfare course that I did. And Danny was the guy that ended up, so he was with another unit and he was, he brought his, I think he, I can't remember what country he was with, but he was out. He was one of the guys that was actually like blessed off and approved. And if it wasn't for Danny, the controller taking his team, and I think it was him and the Germans taking his team over there to help those dudes out, they would have died. Yeah. They would have died out in the wilderness. Um, but yeah, that, yeah. So, I mean, Danny it just goes back that. to the quality of training and, and that kind of stuff and how you can't mass produce. You can't imagine if you took big army or big air force into a winter warfare like this, it'd be a massacre. You know, <laughs> it, would be, it would be a mess. And that's why, like, look at, uh, you know, look at airborne operations. Peaches, I know you're going to know this. Hey, when we're doing mass attack airborne operations, what's the acceptable level of loss? 10%. 10%. The army puts that number out all the time. Like, if we're going to, if we're going to jump, if we're going to do an airborne operation, hey, guys, we're going to have 10% breakage, like 10% of the people that we put out. Imagine a soft team going to their commander and going, <laughs> hey, listen, we're jumping 12 dudes in here. One of them's going to die, though. Uh, we're positive that it's going to, Hey, you'd be like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Like imagine, imagine of all the free fall, like, you know, the combat jumps that have gone on imagine them just saying, Hey, we're going to lose 10% of the guys. Why would you jump? <laughs> Why would you jump? Right. Exactly. But in, in the larger forces, like those larger forces, when you build them out, this is why you cannot mass produce soft personnel. You can't, it takes years to train these guys. And, you know, we're building, if you can see the building blocks of these episodes, and hopefully you've been listening to Soft Truth 1 and Soft Truth 2, but we're focusing on humans first, and then quality is better than quantity, right? Having those small teams of well-trained, well-led individuals, and it leads in to Soft Truth number three, and it's sort of the same. Like I can build a through line to all of these Soft Truths, but it's also distinct in saying that you cannot mass produce these forces. It is, it's going to take a long time. And it even ends at the, again, usocom.mil, look up soft truths. Soft truth three ends with this process cannot be hastened without degrading ultimate capability. They are saying plainly, if you try to speed this process up, it's going, you're going to dilute it. The product is not going to be the same. If you try to make this process, if you try to think about shortening this process, your product is going to be worse. And I got to be honest with you, Peaches, there's a, there's a letter out there about shortening the process <laughs> in the Air Force by removing a school. <laughs> it's tough. When, like, and I mean, it's, it's, I'm saying it tongue in cheek, you know, but I'm, but I'm not, you know what I mean? Like, that's why people have very strong feelings in our community and other communities. You know, when you start seeing people try to be like, okay, how can we, it's okay to make things more efficient, Right. It's okay to take out unnecessary delays. It's okay to manage your pipeline in such a way that you can get through it as efficiently as possible. However, I'm not, I'm not saying speed it up. The time, it, it may be kind of a hard thing to conceptualize, right? If I say I want to make things more efficient, yes, I'm talking about making the time shorter. I am not talking about removing capabilities. I'm not mm-hmm. talking about making 
an individual school shorter or different. Um, a good example of this, when we were at the, uh, when I was at the schoolhouse, the pararescue schoolhouse, the water ops portion used to be like 24 days long, like 24 training days, right? I got in there, I went on my first trip and we weren't working on the weekends. And I was like, why aren't we, why aren't we working on the weekends, fellas? And they were like, oh yeah, it's a guard base and you can't get anybody in there. I walked over to the tower. I called the tower. I was like, hey, can we jump here on the weekends? And they were like, oh yeah, totally. It's just daytime operations. You have to just like, let us know. You just can't jump nights. I lost my mind. You know, Eric, uh, it was a crow. I won't say his last name because he's still in and working, but Eric, my, my crow, who was my DO, he and I lost our mind at a bar and on a bar napkin, we wrote down, we're like, listen, if we get here on a Friday, we knock day jumps out Saturday, Sunday, we're ready to go into night jumps and like equipment jumps Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We immediately cut 10 days off that trip, but we actually were able to add two jumps to it. So we made things more efficient, but we did not take away capability and we didn't degrade the time because you can't hurry the process. The process still has to be the process. And when you start taking things out of that process, you're going to degrade your overall product. Yep. So I, I love that they just ended, you know, just as blunt as possible. This process cannot be hastened without degrading ultimate capability. That's a great way to wrap up Soft Truth 3. Nope, exactly. So uh, appreciate the deep dive on that, Aaron. Um, and everybody else out there, please like, subscribe, leave a review. Uh, hopefully you're enjoying these because we're about to break down two more.